Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of God. Thanks, John. And thank you, men, for reading God's word to us. Alex, thank you for that wonderful teaching on how and why God created us. And Matt, thanks for praying for this church that we love and that we get to partner with in, uh, in Fordham. Just a note about where we are headed, God willing, over the next several uh, months in our Sunday gatherings. If the Lord wills, today and next week, we are going to be looking at these verses that men just read to us in Romans chapter 12. And then in two weeks, on February 28th, my good friend, Pastor John Anzardo, is, who serves a, as a pastor at Maranatha Grace Church, in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. He's scheduled to preach here and uh, looking forward to, to having our brother here with us. And then in March, God willing, we're going to transition into a new sermon series that will take us through parts of the book of Job. So would you please pray for those upcoming gatherings? If you are at all able to, would you please register and come worship in person with us if you can? And, and pray in particular, would you, that, um, that God would use this challenging book of Job to help us, many of us, um, through what's proving to be a deeply challenging season for so many of us. So today, though, I'm going to ask you to open up to Romans 12. If you have a Bible or a device, you're going to want to look at Romans because we're going to look at a bunch of different passages um, as we set a foundation for the two short verses that men just read to us. And what she just read to us in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, these are instructions from God on how to live. How to live right now in 2021 and how to live until we die. But we need to be clear on something out of the gate. This is not advice on how to find acceptance with God. No, these two verses show us how to live because we found acceptance from God. Put a little differently, these two verses are not showing you how to enter the kingdom of God. It's how... God calls you to live once you've become a citizen of his kingdom. These verses come from a letter that the Apostle Paul was inspired by God to write to people who lived in Rome in the first century. And what the Apostle Paul does is he spends most of the first 11 chapters of this letter explaining how it is that a holy God accepts sinful, messed up people into his kingdom to experience his forgiveness, to experience his steadfast, everlasting love. And the way that he does this is through the gospel or the good news. But the letter of Romans starts with some very bad news. 
If you look right at the beginning of Romans, if you flip all the way back to Romans chapter 1, you'll see that Paul describes humanity this way. In chapter 1, verse 29, he says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the Apostle Paul. This is God himself through the Apostle Paul describing us. It's us there. This long list of offenses and failures and character flaws, sins. We are all guilty because of the awful things we've done and the good things we've failed to do. God knows that we're likely, when we read a list like that, we're likely to start pointing at others and comparing ourselves to others who we think are worse than us. And so, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says this, You, me, if you're likely to start pointing at others and wanting to compare yourself to others, he says, You have no excuse. For in passing judgment on another... You condemn yourself. Verse 3, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 5, but because of your hard and penitent heart, you are, listen, storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And if you read that and you start to think, he can't be talking about me here. In the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 10, he says this, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God, he says. See, this is all bad news from the very start. But then there's this turn that happens Later on in chapter 3, look, look at chapter 3, verse 23 with me. If you've read the bad news, you have to read this good news. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might, so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what is this telling us? All of us deserve judgment because we are all guilty, but God was willing to give this gift, unearned, undeserved, this gift of acquittal 
on all charges. Remember that long list of charges I just read in chapter 1? Acquitted of all of them. That's the gift he gives us for free, regardless of what we've done or haven't done. That's what's wrapped up in that phrase in there, justified by his grace in verse 24. It means acquittal, and it means more than that. It means full acceptance with God, whose wrath we deserved. Now, if we're paying attention to all this, that might sound like really good news, but it doesn't sound very fair, does it? In fact, it sounds absolutely unjust. Acquitting someone in spite of the evidence Letting someone go free when they are so clearly guilty? Even calling them righteous? When that happens, in our courts, we're outraged. When that happens to, with violators and abusers and even presidents, when they're acquitted in spite of the evidence, how do you feel about that? But here's what makes this just. It's a gift, verse 24 says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, God himself became a human with every natural human trait except for sin and guilt. And as a man, he was willing to step forward, verse 25, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You see, that means that he was, God was willing to take all the wrath that we stored up for ourselves. All that righteous judgment absorbed in his body instead of ours. None of us deserve that gift, but we can receive it. It's received, verse 25 says, by faith. It's received by faith. By leaning the full weight of our trust on Jesus, admitting our sin, and turning our lives to him, to Jesus, trusting that he is God and that what he suffered was for you, and that it was enough, that there's no more judgment to be had, that is the gospel. And Paul says that through that gospel, God shows his righteousness. You see, we said acquitting the guilty is not just. No righteous judge would do that. But God takes the judgment himself in Jesus. And that's how he can be, verse 26, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. You see, that's how God can be righteous and still forgive us. Be a perfect judge and still acquit us. Because he himself, in the body of Jesus Christ, received all the wrath. Now, Paul spends chapter after chapter digging deeper into that gospel to show everyone who reads this letter to the Romans the, the sublime beauty of it all. And then, at the end of the 11th chapter, it, he, he just breaks out in worship. 
It's as if he's been unpacking this gospel and the beauty of it, wanting his readers to respond to it, but he himself responds to it. And he says in chapter 11, verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. Who could come up with a gospel like this? Who could come up with a solution to our problem like this? In verse 36 of chapter 11, he says, For from him and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. And all that gets us here to chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2. Where, where Paul starts digging into how you are called to live right now if you have believed that gospel. Let's look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, therefore, therefore. That, that's a key word there. It's because of everything you just read, everything I've said from chapter 1 through 11, because of all of that, by the mercies of God, he says, or, or in light of the mercies of God, because of everything that he has done for you, I appeal, or I'm pleading with you, he says, quote, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, or in light of the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, some of us, I suspect, are really familiar with these words. In fact, maybe we're too familiar with these words. They might, they might even sound normal to you. But these words are not normal. If you lived in Rome in the first century, you knew about sacrifices. All right? The folks who read this originally, they knew what it was like to stand by an altar and watch their own living animal killed ritually. Blood spread out. The body then, then burned on the altar, flames rising, smoke filling the space, the smell of burnt flesh and the, and the, and the smoke rising to the deity that they worshipped. So for them to, to read here that they themselves should be sacrificed, that's a shocking image. Maybe it's become too sanitized for us. Now, thankfully, Paul specifies here that he's calling us to, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. So there's no literal dying involved here necessarily. It's not about being destroyed the way a sacrifice normally was destroyed on the altar. It's about giving the full energy of your life to God. Paul goes on to say that when your body is offered up as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, he says, that is your spiritual worship. He's saying it's, it's a form of worship, but really that term for spiritual worship, it could be translated this way. It's your reasonable worship. In other words, that's a rational, right way for you to respond 
It's rational and it makes sense for me to give myself to God in response to the sublime reality of this gift that he's given me. Now, typically in, in, when we make religious offerings, uh, something, what's happening there? Something is going from being mine to now belonging to the deity to whom I have offered it, right? Think about financial offerings that you give to the God of Scripture. It goes from being yours to being his. In the Old Testament, people brought their lambs and their other animals that belonged to them, and they offered them on the altar in the temple to God. Paul here is saying, bring yourself to the altar. Bring your, your this. this. This is what belongs to you, and you need to bring to God your body, yourself. Now, it's true that God already owns everything anyway, doesn't he? Like, he already owned those lambs that people brought to the temple to offer because he created them. And our money is already his too because he's the one who gave it to us. So when we offer it to him, we're really just giving him what belongs to him. And we ourselves, our bodies belong to him too because he made us, as Alex taught us today. And on top of that, he redeemed us. But, but nevertheless, in a real sense, when we bring an offering, we're giving something that, that we think of as ours. In a sense, it is ours. And we're surrendering it to him. That's what Romans 12, 1 is calling us to do. And now in order, Paul says, in order for you to do this, in order for you to offer yourself to the Lord, you need to do this. Verse 2 of Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there are two parts to this in verse 2. One negative part, one positive part. He says, don't be conformed, be transformed. Simple enough, right? And the way to be transformed, he says, is through an ongoing renewal of your mind. So, so we offer our bodies by having our minds transformed. We offer ourselves by having our minds transformed to think in new ways, rather than allowing ourselves to think in ways that align with, quote, this present world. And as we learn to think in new ways, he explains, we will be able to discern what is the will of God. Christians often talk about discerning the will of God. And the way I've often heard it talked about in churches over my lifetime is discerning the will of God is, is brought up when it comes to making major life decisions. Right? Like, should I date this person? Should we get married? If so, when? Should I move away to sunny California? Should I retire? Should I buy a house? Should I become a missionary? Should I apply to graduate school? You get the idea, right? These big life-changing decisions that we come upon, we often talk about, I need to discern what is God's will in this moment for me right now. But when the Bible talks about discerning what the will of God is, it's not necessarily talking about those kinds of decisions. 
as much as really it's talking about the much smaller choices that we make every single day. When the Bible talks about discerning God's will, it's talking about the moral choices, the ethical choices that we make. That's not to say that those questions that I just listed, those big questions, don't have a a moral or ethical element to them. They, They often do. But discerning God's will in the Bible has to do with identifying, as Paul says, what is good and acceptable and perfect in the eyes of God. That is, discerning God's will has to do with aligning ourselves with what God tells us is right. It's about aligning ourselves with the ethics that he gives us in his word. So that what we believe, what we think, what we expect, what we value, aligns with with what his word tells us. So for instance, in the next several verses after the section that we're focusing on today, Paul goes on to give uh, lots of examples about things like pursuing humility. If you just kind of glance through those next several verses in chapter 12, you'll see he talks in there about uh, pursuing humility, about serving others, about hating evil, about being patient through trouble, about praying consistently, about providing for the needs of others, about blessing those who persecute or hurt you, about associating with the lowly, about not being wise in your own eyes, about being subject to governing authorities. That's some of what, just some of what he lists as examples of what it means to discern and align yourself up with the will of God. It's seeing those things as valuable and non-negotiable and pursuing them because they are good and acceptable and perfect. That's what it means to discern the will of God. Now, as we learn to value and prioritize what matters to God, That is, of course, going to affect the decisions we make about career and marriage and it's, uh, you know, all those big life choices. But discerning his will, it doesn't mean that God has a, a plan for you that he's hiding from you and your job is to somehow figure out what it is like a, like a game. So that you'll discern what it, what, what he's hiding from you. Or what he has just chosen not to tell you. No, discerning the will of God is actually learning to value and believe what he has told you. It's learning to value what he values and love what he loves. And and that's going to shape the decisions we all make, isn't it? Even when he hasn't told you explicitly, marry that person, go to this graduate school, move to this place. Choose this career. No, when we learn to value what he values, we learn to align ourselves with all the instructions that he gives us in places like the book of Romans. It enables us to make wise choices when it comes to those big decisions. Now, the hard part, of course, of all of that is that we live in a world that in many cases values what God hates and hates what he values. Isn't that true? Now, there are some areas in our own culture, and our own world, that, that actually do line up with what God values. Praise God for that. Thank you for what 
the, the theologians have often called common grace. That means that not everything in our culture is messed up, thankfully. But in many, many ways, many things that the world values, God hates, and what the world hates, God values. And that's why there's this warning from Paul here, do not be conformed to this world. Or it could be translated this way, do not be conformed to this present age. World or age. The Bible has a whole lot to say about this. Over and over and over again, people who have believed in Jesus are told in the Bible, you don't belong to this world. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we are called elect exiles. God's people, you believe the gospel? You are an elect exile. You know what that means? It means you are a chosen people who are living as foreigners wherever it is that you live, you're a foreigner. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says there, our citizenship is not in this world. No, he says our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if you believed in Jesus, when you believed in Jesus, you became a citizen of his kingdom. That's your permanent home. And not only that, but it's that home from where you must inherit your way of living and thinking. What you care about and approve of is meant to line up with the ethics of God's kingdom, not this kingdom. Your expectations and beliefs and values are meant to line up with the ethics of his kingdom and the values of his kingdom, not this one. Now that does not mean that this world where you live right now, that it, that it doesn't matter somehow. Or, or that you're just biding time here until Christ returns and what happens here is irrelevant. No, on the contrary. God teaches his people who are living in exile as foreigners in this world to seek the good of the place where you live. It's a command from him. In the Old Testament, for instance, when the Hebrew people were literally sent to live as foreigners in another land, which serves as, as a kind of metaphor for the, the spiritual exile that we experience as Christians now, God told those people, as they were going off to live in that foreign land as exiles, he said, Jeremiah 29, verse 7, but seek the well-being of the city where I've sent you in exile. Seek its well-being. Well, just bide your time there. And pray to the Lord, he says, on its behalf. For when it thrives, you will thrive. You see, we have a stake here. This is not a permanent home. This world is not. But there, there's an importance about it. We have a role here to play. And part of in part, it is to seek the good of this place, this world. But God goes on to say in Jeremiah 29, I will visit you. And by visit, he doesn't mean I'm going to stop by to say hello. He's saying, I'm coming back for you. <laughs> I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. He's saying, I will bring you back to my kingdom, your permanent home, the place that you have inherited when you were adopted into my family. So 
What's the big idea here? It's, it's keep all of your hope locked on this, God says to exiles. I'm coming for you. Await your Savior and keep all your hope set on what he will do when he comes. And don't get so comfortable that your way of thinking and living begins to mirror, to, to subtly align with the values and ways of the place where God has sent you for a temporary season. Don't be conformed to that present temporary residence, God says. In fact, the more you conform to this world, the less you'll be able to seek its good. The more you think like a citizen of the city, where God has sent you, the more you'll start to seek its good, but in its terms and in its ways. Your ability to discern what's good for the city will get clouded, will get warped. Here's what Jesus Christ prayed to God the Father, and he's praying this on behalf of everyone who'd ever believe in him. He says in John 17, he's praying and says, they my followers, they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In other words, set them apart. They're in this world, but they're not of this world. They're not from here. So set them apart, sanctify them by keeping them in your word, aligned with your truth as it's found in your word. And then Jesus goes on to pray, as you sent me into this world, so have I sent them into this world. We are not here by accident. We have been sent here with work to be done. But the less we conform to this world, the better able we'll be to do the work we've been sent here to do. We are in the world as foreigners, but we are not citizens of this world. We are citizens of an eternal kingdom. And that has been the experience of Christians throughout history. This is nothing new. Some people, and I've heard this said, that, that today, in the, the era that we're living in, our present culture in America, perhaps especially in this part of the country, is, is particularly antagonistic to the kingdom of God. And I get what people mean when they say that, but it strikes me as odd, because when has the culture of this nation or any other nation ever not been antagonistic to the, to the kingdom of God? It's always been. And so our desire as a Christian is not to somehow go back to a past era in our culture where things somehow were more aligned with God's word. That time never existed. As Russ Moore writes, the scriptures call on all Christians everywhere to be strangers and exiles in whatever culture we inhabit. Listen, he goes on. The political and cultural climate of America does not make us exiles. End quote. We are exiles regardless of the political and cultural climate of this nation. But he goes on to say, quote, the political and cultural climate of America can, however, remind us 
that we are exiles and strangers. Right? When we feel like outsiders, when we feel like the things that we believe aren't readily accepted or considered appropriate to even speak about, it can, make, it can remind us that we are exiles and strangers just as all of our ancestors were. All of our ancestors were. And, and frankly, most of our ancestors, as Christians, most of our ancestors had much stronger reminders that they were exiles and strangers. The reminders we get on a daily basis are mild compared to what most of our ancestors have experienced and are experiencing right now throughout the world. Now, our desire is not to move back to some past era where things were great for Christians or for America. No, no, this is never a Christian nation. This is never a city aligned with the purposes of God, ever. The evidence for that is abounding. Jesus doesn't only talk about us as exiles in a foreign land. Jesus also uses this metaphor of, um, he, he, he talks about this age versus the age to come. Jesus draws this distinction between people for whom all of life is locked up in this age, on one hand, and then people he describes as worthy to attain to that age. What's that age? And what makes us worthy to attain to that? That age is talking about an eternal age. And what makes us worthy to attain to it is not anything we've done. It's simply the fact that we believe the gospel. An eternal age where life is everlasting. The thing is that every single one of us is shaped by the time we're from. Isn't it? Wherever you grew up, where you spent most of your life, that, that era is going to shape what you're like. That's why you say someone's a child of the 90s or a child of the 80s. We're shaped by our era. It's what makes time travel movies so interesting. And, and some time travel comedies are, are so funny because of this. So, for instance, you, you take a, a teenage kid from the 1980s in suburbia and you drop him in the 1950s. And what happens in a movie? Comedy ensues and adventure ensues. Because you start to see those stark contrasts between those two eras. That, that's the premise of Back to the Future, for instance, if you're not familiar with the movie. kid from the 80s gets dropped in the 50s. And it just occurred to me last night, frankly, for the first time ever, that a modern-day version of Back to the Future would be a teenager from today traveling all the way back to 1991. <laughs> Which doesn't seem, that's, that's hardly even the past, is it, for some of us. If you want to feel old, there you go. Jesus is saying, however, that if you are my follower, you belong to a new era. And so he says, live accordingly. We're all shaped by the era we're from. He's saying, you belong to a new everlasting era. And because that's where you're from, that's the era that should shape the way that you live while you're here. In a similar way, we're all shaped by the place that we're from. Many of us at New Hope Fellowship know something about the immigrant experience, either because some of us um, ourselves uh, have, have experienced 
uh, life as an immigrant, or maybe our parents are immigrants, or maybe you've lived as an expat in somewhere else in the world. Maybe you know what it feels like to live as an outsider in a culture that doesn't feel like home. Because you operate by a, a different set of norms than everyone else around you. Maybe, maybe as an immigrant or an expat, you, you feel like you have a different way of seeing the world than the people around you. And in some ways, that can be embarrassing. It, it draws attention to you. You feel odd. You can feel marginalized. You can experience persecution. You can experience alienation. No doubt, all that's true. But here's the thing. If you really value those practices and those ways of thinking and living that you inherited from your homeland, you're going to keep holding on to them. Don't you? You're going to try to. Romans 2, in Romans, in Romans chapter 12, I should say, our Father is telling us, don't conform to the culture of the place where you're living as an expat or to the age that you don't belong to. Now, if you have spent time in the Bible over the years, you can probably point out to many ways that the will of God conflicts with what this world tells us is good or acceptable. There are many obvious ways. And we are always in danger of conforming in those obvious areas. But the fact is that in many of those cases, that, those, that might not be a discernment problem as much as it's just an obedience problem. In the sense that there's some areas where it's just clear that what our culture tells us is good, but God says it's not, or the opposite. And it's not hard to discern. The question is, will we obey? Will we, in the words of 1 Peter 1.14, as obedient children, not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance? It's an obedience issue. But, but, here's a more subtle danger. There are many ways of living and thinking that we can easily confuse with the will of God. Because in unnoticed ways, we, we've, we've begun to adopt the thinking of this present age. It's not the obvious conflicts between the world and the, and the word of God. It's those subtle ways that have begun to seep into our thinking. They've, they've shaped the way that we're thinking so that, in a sense, I'm, I'm talking about ethics, beliefs, expectations, and values that, that might actually seem good to us as Christians. They might even seem godly to us but not because God says they are. No, maybe they seem good and godly and beneficial to us because we haven't actively sought to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Perhaps we fail to rigorously test these things against God's truth. So unbeknownst to us, we're conforming and we don't realize it. Especially when lots of Christians do that once. <laughs> you can be part of a Christian culture in a church or in a, in a place where, where everyone's kind of accepted certain things as aligning with God's good and perfect will. This is good and, and acceptable and perfect in God's eyes, when really it isn't. David Foster Wallace famously told this little story about two young fish who were swimming along when they happened to meet an older fish swimming in the other direction. And the older fish nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? 
And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and asks, what the heck is water? You see, the fish wasn't aware of the water because all he ever knew was water. How do you explain to a fish what water is? He lives in it. It's all he knows. It's a thing, but, but, but they can't know it or see it, discern it. It's too close. It's too familiar. Brothers and sisters, so much of our culture is it's the water that we swim in. We don't think about it. We don't notice it. It has impacted you in ways that you don't see and, and, and ways that, that you will find very hard to identify even when you try. In some ways, the culture of this world in which you live, in this present age in which you live, has shaped the way that even you understand God's words. Do you believe that any one of us reads, interprets, and applies God's word without any effect from the culture of this present world and age that we live in? The way we filter it, think about it? So that while you think you're being guided by God's truth, it's possible that you're really being guided by the values of this world, of this city, that have just been mapped onto God's word, unnoticed. So that what we think is consistent with Christianity, what we think is consistent with our witness as Christ followers, is really more of a reflection of the age we live in. And so because that's true, it is no wonder that God says, be transformed by the ongoing renewal of your mind. It's a rigorous, ongoing process. I almost said never-ending. It's not never-ending. We're getting there. It's not never-ending. But it lasts throughout our life in this world. So that by testing, that is by, by bringing what you hold on to, what you prioritize, your goals, your priorities, your expectations about life and about others, your values, bringing them into the, the blazing light of God's radical truth. That's what testing them means. So that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Next week, if the Lord wills, we will press into this topic. I think more practically about it. But in the meantime, would you prayerfully ask this question? Where am I conforming? Would you ask that question of yourself? Maybe it's a question to talk about with your care group this week. Talk with other brothers and sisters. Talk with, with your family with people who live near you, where am I? And I'm not saying where is the church at large conforming or where are Christians conforming? No, me, I, where am I conforming? That's the question I'm encouraging you to ask. Where am I conforming? My household, me. Where am I likely to conform? Where have I conformed without even noticing it as a resident in this age? But not just in this age, in this world generally, but locally, right here, in this place, in the United States. For many of us, it's right here in Westchester County, New York metro area. How have I conformed to the wisdom, to the culture of this place? We are about to take the Lord's Supper in a few moments. 
The Lord's Supper is a constant, constant renewer of our minds because it constantly brings us back to see where our citizenship is and what age we belong to. You know, all this, this testing and discerning and not conforming, it's hard work. But it's not forever. At the table, Jesus shows us and he tells us that all this testing and discerning and not conforming, it's all going to soon be replaced by resting and feasting and enjoying our true home in the light of the sublime beauty of his sacrifice. So in the meantime, because he offered himself up for us, and we see that each time we come to the table, because he offered himself up for us, we can offer ourselves to him. And the Spirit will help us to do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Thank you for bringing us into your kingdom. We confess that there's a lot about this world that we love. There's a lot about living in this age that's been good to us, that we praise you for, we celebrate. But nevertheless, Lord, there's so much brokenness, injustice, and pain. Pain suffered and pain inflicted. We thank you, Lord, that this is not our home, that our citizenship is not here. We thank you for bringing us into citizenship in your kingdom by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in your blood. Lord, if you're willing to shed out your blood for us, empower us by your spirit to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices to you. In Jesus' name, amen.